Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. So this podcast hopes to contribute to improving the public discourse on the issues surrounding the laws of war. And if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, or indeed members of the media and other shapers of the public discourse. And perhaps take a quick minute to rate or drop a one-line review of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Mary Ellen O'Connell from the University of Notre Dame. She'll be very well known to many listeners, having written a great deal on both USAD Bellum and IHL, and indeed international law theory more generally. In our discussion here, we turn to a new article that Mary Ellen is still working on, on the issues of imminence within the doctrine of self-defense, viewed through the lens of the killing of General Qassam Soleimani in January of 2020. Imminence is, of course, a highly debated concept within the doctrine of self-defense, It's become very relevant within the context of the so-called unwilling or unable doctrine and the doctrine of preventative self-defense or the Bush doctrine. But as you will hear, Mary Ellen doesn't just focus on the narrow theoretical issue of imminence and its relationship with necessity within the doctrine of self-defense, but rather goes right back to just war theory and the natural law origins of Yusad Bellum to engage the issue. And while her argument is narrowly about imminence, it is really a far more profound and broad argument about how we should think about war security more broadly, and about international law itself. Both the article itself and our conversation here are likely to provoke strong reactions, both for and against. So with that, I bring you Mary Ellen O'Connell. Mary Ellen O'Connell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Craig, it's really a privilege to be here. It's, I've been looking forward to discussing the issue of self-defense with you for ever, probably, <laughs> and really an honor to be part of this scholarly and informative group of discussions you've been having. Well, thank you. So as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been asking all of our guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that's a little bit off the wall or just something that most of your colleagues might not know about you or whatever you'd like to share with us. A lot of people ask me at this juncture how I got interested in international law and the use of force. And I always have to tell them it was being a child in the Vietnam War era. My father was in the Army Reserve and joined the National Guard so that he, father of five young children, wouldn't be sent. His his odds of going to Vietnam would be lower. And he got my two uncles, both 21, not in college, into the National Guard as well. So I grew up with the kind of dual view of military force. My father and my uncles were proud to serve in the uniform. I married a combat veteran, highly decorated combat veteran of the Gulf War. On the other hand, people did not want to go to Vietnam. And my family prayed for the people of Vietnam every night. We heard from the pulpit in our parish church that the Pope in Rome wanted us to end the war in Vietnam. So I very early understood the complexity, or at least was aware of the complexity of this whole problem of war, that it had some kind of role that we were not willing to relinquish as a human family, as as a country, the United States. And on the other hand, there was something deeply wrong with it. So it's been 
following that duality my entire career from a very early age that has um, shaped my interest in the subject. And I've just had wonderful opportunities to continue that exploration, culminating with this one today. But I was a student in Cambridge of Chris Greenwood. I was in his very first set of lectures, his year-long lectures in Cambridge to the LLB class on international law and the use of force. So that was a privilege and kept me going. I was involved with Dieter Fleck and Joram Dinstein in creating the manual for San Remo on civil war. So that, those were very early days of working very directly on with some of the greats, of course, Dieter and, and Joram. Soon thereafter and during those years, I was asked by the United States Department of Defense to become a professional military educator in Garmisch Partenkirchen and part of the um, institute that's there blending or supporting the turn to democracy of the former Warsaw Treaty Organization countries. And I taught international law and the use of force, international humanitarian law, United Nations peacekeeping and conflict prevention at in Garmisch to those elite members of the security establishments of the former Warsaw Treaty Organization countries. And probably this is the place I will stop on my personal journey. Mike Schmidt was my successor in Garmisch Partenkirchen. And then after those years, I returned to the academy, first Ohio State, and then Notre Dame for the last 15 and a half years. Wow. Well, as you say, I mean, you've had a, a deep history in the laws of war uh, writ large, both in USAD Bellum and IHL. And so our, most of our listeners will certainly know a lot of your work. But in keeping with sort of the past practice of, of the podcast, I thought we should talk about something quite recent that you've been working on. I learned from Twitter that you're working on something on imminence and using the General Qassam Soleimani strike or targeted killing as a jumping off point. I thought that would, would be a great issue for us to delve into. And I, as I understand it, I don't think the article is yet up on SSRN, but will be soon. We can post that, but you've allowed me a, an advanced copy. The topic of imminence is obviously an area of considerable debate, even within the more controversial, broader topic of anticipatory self-defense. But in this article, you really make a, a full frontal assault on both the idea of anticipatory self-defense itself, as well as the concept of imminence within it. And while I think that a lot of scholars, jurists, policymakers will agree with many of your conclusions about the recent sort of distortion and abuse of the concept of imminence, I'm guessing that a lot are going to push back against and perhaps disagree with some of the premises of your argument and your broader rejection of anticipatory self-defense itself. I thought maybe we could begin with perhaps you talking about why it is it that you, you make this sort of full frontal assault, so to speak. And with an overview of the, the argument, and then we can sort of walk through it in sort of a methodical way and unpack some of the details and get into some of the premises that are, I think are going to be quite controversial. I um, first began to study international law and the use of force with um, Chris Greenwood, as I said. And Chris took a very mainstream, a very classical British position in that 1981-82 course. So I learned from him the kind of typical had been the mainstream for beginning to be the mainstream, but had been the, a, a more dominant British view. I should mention, by the way, also, because I, I criticize very heavily Derek Bowett 
as being, in a way, the villain in this whole story of eminence. He was my uh, professor for general international law that same LLB year. And I have great admiration for him. He was a person of real courage. In, he was representing Libya and uh, at the International Court of Justice. And he actually got Libya to comply with the judgment of the court to withdraw troops from northern Chad. That was amazing and probably did more good for peace than anything that, that Professor Brow had ever wrote. But he did write something that was highly problematic. Nevertheless, Cambridge, early 80s, this is supposed to be the, the law of armed conflict. Now note, at the same time, Ian Brownlee is in Oxford teaching something very different. So I start out in this particular mode, and then I go to Columbia Law School where I'm studying with Oscar Schachter, also a course on international law and the use of force. And Oscar, Joram Dinstein and I once said in the mid-90s that Oscar Schachter was the most brilliant international law mind in the world, living international law mind at that time. And he was extraordinary. But he was a practicing lawyer who always gave, was always thinking about practical issues and what would states go along with, what could the UN support. And by the Reagan era, he was no longer willing to take the clear stand that true analysis of the charter leads to. These are my uh, formative years. But then years after years, as we see what's happening from that point, 1985, the Reagan administration gives way the end of the Cold War. And then we have the post-Cold War period in which the U.S. is on its own as the superpower. And our presidents are beginning to think they can write their own rules. It's also the peak moment of realist political theory. And that's what's really driving the U.S. attitude toward international law and the use of force. But we in the international legal community, the specialists, are going along with this for a variety of complex reasons, including that we want to be listened to. And as Daniel Bethlehem famously told us, if we don't give them the rules and the flexibility to use force when they want, policymakers are not going to listen to us. That goes on. And then we see this era of never-ending war. And for me, the greatest shock that the United States, which had so heavily criticized targeted killing, is engaging in targeted killing. So I spent most of the post 9-11 years deeply diving into this doctrine. I'm deeply thinking, where did this attitude come from? It's not on the pages of the charters. And I've done a huge amount of research and thinking about the history of international law and the use of force, and especially the prohibition on force and the exceptions for self-defense and security council authorization. You just don't get to imminence and attacking. You don't get excuses for targeted killing from either the origins for the uh, real reasons why we have a prohibition on force, let alone the positive law and its form in the charter. So that's what's really taken up my mind. And, and I have come to conclude that the reason we're here today having this discussion about imminence, which is not a word in the charter or in any of the precursor documents, is because of realist political theory that has come to dominate so heavily U.S. foreign policy and therefore infiltrated NATO and the foreign policies of the, of the NATO member countries because they go along with what the U.S. is insisting is the law. And I kept writing things and 
getting patted on the head, oh, that's nice, but not being taken seriously. And until Donald Trump. And the the thing about Donald Trump is that he has so laid bare a lot of the pretense, a lot of our thinking, well, this sounds really good so we can make a case for it. He, he is, is such a simple and straightforward thinker. He wants to kill Qasem Soleimani, so he does it. And somebody tells him at first, well, you should say that Soleimani was going to do something imminently and that's why you killed him. So the first tweet on January 3rd, 2020 is he was doing, he was about to do something bad. The next tweet is, oh, who cares what he was about to do? We know he was bad in the past. So thank you, Donald Trump. This is the opening. This lays the imminence idea bare for what it really is. It's a license to kill using high tech, very heavy weaponry. It was our new model Reaper drone that we used. They fired the newest missiles, the JAGM, and 10 people were killed in an allied country. So I think this is a long overdue reckoning. And 2020 is a year for, was a year for reckoning. We're continuing that reckoning into 2021 about how the world got to this point and how the United States got to this point on so many fronts, on climate change, on health, and on why we've been involved for 20 years in endless war and why we're still killing people, multiple groups of people, because we've got a beef for the past actions of an individual. So thanks to Donald Trump, I thought this was the opportunity to once again make this argument and this time to put it in the context of what's really going on. Nobody wants to apologize for Donald Trump to try to to say, well, what he really meant was so I think this is the moment when we finally say halt to the long slide. You and others, Nora Erekat, for example, you both have brilliant pieces of analysis saying, tracking that the use of imminence keeps growing and getting less and less um, contained in terms of what it would restrict. But I'm saying, yes, it's got that propensity, but You're never going to get to a true rule. You cannot control conduct through a concept like imminence. And that's why it's not in the charter. It's inevitably only going to move in the direction which it has. Past where you and Nora talked about through this this slide and ever opening to no restraint at all. And that's where we are. So there's only one place to go from this true bottom where we are now. And that's back to the documents as written, and to the context and the history and the legal theory in which they're set. Okay, so why don't we start there then? And as your paper does, you actually start way back with just war theory. And I'm not sure we we need to go through all of that now, but... I, I can do it quickly. But yeah, it is part of your premise for understanding the charter itself. And so why don't we get into that? Let me also say a few things. So I I feel very strongly in my research, I think, has shown this in, in other things that I've written. For example, a book chapter last year with Karen Greenberger on reestablishing international law in the national security state. I really delve into how during the Cold War and the post-Cold War, realist ideology that puts militarism and military force as the highest priority for a national leader has really deformed our analysis of international law. 
But there's another problem. You can't just take away realism and then you'll have a, a perfectly good set of legal principles to apply and to to try to persuade national leaders that if you want to be law-abiding, this is what you abide by. Because another thing has happened while realism is taking off and becoming this strong way of looking at the world, all kinds of, of problems related to it, especially for the international law and the use of force, because it's diametrically opposed to having law against war. But here's the, the, the second part of the problem I think we're seeing, and that's that we've completely lost any understanding of natural law theory. If you ask most of us, I certainly, you know, I've tried to teach myself and I've got miles to go, but most of us who are specialists in this area, I think you'll agree with me, Craig, we never learned any natural law. It wasn't polite to discuss natural law. It was, a, you know, it was a sign that you were engaged in magical thinking. And we realized that we've gotten to this vanishing point of international law and the use of force and other major areas of international law. For example, the law we need to protect the environment because we don't understand natural law. It's back in the discussion. And that's extremely important. But here's the thing that we have to get past. A lot of people right now are pushing back on natural law, including the International Law Commission in their work on Yuskogans. I understand why they're pushing back. They don't have the tools. They don't have the knowledge and background to know what it is. How can you say that Yuskogans or general principles are based on natural law theory when you can't tell your hearer, your listener, what natural law theory is? So what we see is all kinds of permutations on positive law theory to try to explain things, but, we but you'll see these adjectives and qualifiers added. And that's where I'm inviting people to look into why isn't positive law enough and how are we trying to modify positive law in order to make sense of use Kogan's doctrine, which includes the prohibition on the use of force or general principles like necessity and proportionality, which is so important in this area of self-defense. It's in those qualifiers that we're finding the evidence that natural law has to be part of this discussion. We know from most, history doesn't defy us. That we can all do because lawyers are, in part, always historians. And if we go back in the history, there is a period before positive law doctrine comes to dominate international law and all law in the mid-19th century, in which all law was explained through natural law theory. And it is in that era where we get the prohibition on the use of force, where we have to have a prohibition on the use of force if we're going to have any complete theory of law, because law exists as an alternative to physical force in creating order in, in human communities. And we get a, a well-rounded, complete explanation of that prohibition and of law in general in society through natural law theory. We're handicapped today because that goes away with the end of theological, the acceptance of theology and public discourse with the rise of science and the enlightenment in the 19th century. We went through then a century and a half of unbelievable rise in military force and the decline in respect for the right to life. It's being egged on by realist political theory. But now we're in this dawning post-pandemic era in which we see a whole other raft of problems we have to deal with. And it's becoming acceptable to discuss natural law again. We know we dug ourselves into this deep hole, an array of existential threats from nuclear war to 
global health, unending new pandemics on the horizon, getting out of the current pandemic, trying to save the climate, endangered species, water resources, air, agricultural land, it's all under threat. And then we have these social justice, racial and poverty issues that uh, result from, they're all interconnected. If we're going to turn to those kinds of issues, we're going to need a much more robust body of theory and a body of theory that's going to readjust our priorities in international law so that the use of military force becomes restricted heavily again so we can move our focus back to where it should be. The answers through law and through principles, not only of treaty and custom, but use Kogan's and general principles for handling those, those series of threats. So that's why I insist on going back to the natural law era and finding there the prohibition on the use of force as it is received into modern international law by our friend Hugo Grotius himself. He understood, of course, because he was only a natural lawyer, we don't have the modern rise of science and with it positive law until 100 years later with Vattel. You know, I highly recommend for people who haven't read Philip Allett's Health of Nations, he tells the Vattel story so well. And uh, he's the one who really does it in a beautifully philosophically rich way, a gentle way, because Philip knew when he wrote Health of Nations that to try to express anything about natural law was going to doom his book to failure. But he does make a very solid case for the shift by Vattel to positivism and to the rise of the sovereign state as being the main positivist actor without any over without any theory of law and legal principle that could bind sovereign that did not give his consent. And this is really in a way the, where we really begin to lose our solidified position as having a coherent theory of law for international law, because we, did, we can't rely on the social compact. That natural law doctrine somehow persists within nation states. We're willing to allow that much natural law to persist, but we're not allowing that where there's no tangible institutions of government and international law. If we're now going to rebuild this true robust theory for international law, then we begin to see that we've got an ancient prohibition on the use of force. We call it peremptory. It's got to be there. All the other rules don't make any sense without a core prohibition that violence must be restricted, that the law has to be the first and foremost way we resolve disputes and we set expectations for the future, that prohibition then is codified in the UN Charter as it's received from natural law of the, go back to 1648. And we can't backtrack from it because it is a principle of use Kogan's. So when we solidify and even expand the prohibition on the use of force, when we codify it under the theory of use Kogan's doctrine, it cannot decrease, it cannot regress, it can only expand. Saying we have a general prohibition on the use of force that may only be accepted or limited, as I prefer to think of it, when a state is experiencing an actual armed attack. Otherwise, when there's no armed attack in evidence, we go to the collective and we get collective decision-making through the Security Council. That's what the Charter says. That's the only thing it says. It does not say you can decide that in the future, something is going to happen to your country that gives you the right under the principles of necessity and proportionality 
to counterattack, killing who knows how many people using military forces, not low level skirmishes, or as we like to say in international law, quoting the Nicaragua case, mere frontier incidents. So that's the actual law of self-defense. It starts with the Yuskogan's peremptory norm. It has codified written limitations on what had come before. And that's how we go forward. And thank goodness, because Craig, what have we learned in the last 150 years? What have we learned since the adoption of the charter? That we don't really raise our security through abandoning the restrictions on the use of force and using military force in the realist way to promote national power. We have only created for ourselves this set of true existential problems that we cannot solve with a Hellfire missile. The only reason why this has gone on as long as it has is because the United States is a super wealthy country and it's been able to keep paying for these terrible mistakes. But what we've learned in the pandemic here is, wow, even the United States can't pay enough to prevent the deaths of 400,000 people. So we've got to get back to first principles, redirect our, our policies. I mean, I think that you've indicated that the charter sets up this the prohibition on the use of force and with the very limited and narrow exceptions of the right of individual and collective self-defense in response to an armed attack or collective security operations as authorized by the UN Security Council. We're here, of course, really concerned with the right of self-defense. Now, in the article, you look at the language of Article 51 and do seem to concede that the language allows for a use of force in self-defense where an armed attack occurs, right? And you you draw a distinction between occurs and occurred and concede that this could be a use of force as an armed attack is commencing, or you, I think, as I read it, are even willing to go as far as your own Dinstein sort of interceptive. Interceptive or incipient. Incipient armed attack is the word he uses. Right. And I think Tom Rouse uses interceptive in saying like, it's not really anticipatory, but it is, you know, interceptive. Like you, you don't have to wait for the first blow to actually land if the armed attack is in progress and you can sort of cut it off at the pass. That, in your view, is permissible under the language of Article 51. Is that right? Absolutely. Because, Craig, this is the difference between a workable rule and a non-working rule. The difference is the evidence. We know this. We're law professors. Everything turns on evidence. Whether you can actually say, so the genius of the charter is there's a general prohibition. There's a mechanism for dealing with future threats in a deliberative fashion that does not give undue weight to the state that fears it will be the victim. There's some objective process approach to future threats. And then in the case where the self-judging potential victim can say to the world, there's tangible evidence, Waldock example. So it is Waldock who first in his Hague lectures uses the term imminence, but he doesn't use it in the way it is later used incorrectly, expansively to the point of the vanishing point we've discussed. Waldock says the imminent because he are because he's talking about for example a flotilla of ships that are on the high seas under orders 
that have been retrieved through intelligence sources and they are under orders to attack. They have not yet attacked, but they are in progress. This is the example Denstein uses too. It's an incipient attack. The difference between that and killing Qasem Soleimani is that there is evidence that 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 is an attack occurring. What Soleimani, you know, he was riding in a car. He was doing nothing to attack the United States in the moment he was killed. And even then, one individual is not the armed attack that Article 51 is talking about. But here's the, I want to say more about this critical distinction. Occurs, says, there must be evidence, material evidence, objective evidence, so that that's how you rein in the, the sovereign state actor in only using force in that situation that the international community can see with that state that it's happening, where we get into so much trouble. Now, I think the first uses of imminence by Bowett, for example, were completely in the service of what he thought was British foreign policy to preserve the empire. So he introduces a very problematic term, imminence, because he's he's thinking about, as he's finishing his book on international law and self-defense, he's looking at the condemnation of the international community for the British-French-Israeli attack on Egypt. Bowett thought that was fine. So that's what he's defending. But then look at how in the Cold War, that word imminence is being used. In the United States, it's being picked up then by people like Abe Sofair, who are saying, oh, we, we have to be able to attack ahead of time before we even see any of this objective evidence, because we don't want to be at a disadvantage So now we begin to see arguments. We can attack when we see them preparing. We can attack when we get intelligence that they might prepare. We can attack because they have a propensity to prepare to attack. And that's why you end up killing in the Obama administration saying that, well, we'll we'll kill people like Anwar al-Awlaki because he in the past has done propaganda. That's going to reach people in the future. They will he'll connect them up with a bomb maker and all that counts as imminent attack on the United States. This introduces this realist fear factor that you can't wait in an era of high-tech weapons, in, in terrorist use of tactics, in asymmetrical warfare. You have to attack first. And of course, as, as you write about in your article on this topic, the really problematic argument starts coming in with the Australian prime minister's or foreign minister's argument about being able to do this preemptive attacking over cyber fears that in the future, they might use their cyber capacity to attack you. So somehow you're able to use military force or preemptive cyber attacks, and then we're really in a lawless state. This is where everyone can make everything up. So just let me tie these points together. So, so the Distinction is between having evidence and not having evidence. Then the real problem that has really grown up for us is I think where the work really needs to be done, not only in reteaching natural law so that we understand why these principles can't be diluted through interpretation or arguments, spurious arguments about customary international law. That's one thing we have to do. And the other thing we have to do is persuade people that in fact, they're not better off, they are not more secure if they start using this logic of preemption in cyberspace, in conventional kinetic conflict. You can't have a rule that prevents that. If you are gonna be the 
if it's only the attacking state that has can decide on what is just policy grounds that they are going to come at some point into the future under this attack. That's the only distinction you can make in the law. Either there's evidence that the attack is happening or there is no evidence. This is usually, if I'm making this point to my students or other audiences, they say, you're dooming us. We are dead people walking. We are the classical, we're a wall ducks sitting ducks and we are dead. And I am saying, you watch too many movies (laughs) because that is the truth of the post-pandemic era. We are not better off undertaking preemptive attacks, kinetic or cyber. We're just not more secure. We have the evidence of that. We have the damage that it does to the rule of law. And we have the fact that there's a whole set of actually lawful and effective ways to respond to these fears and concerns that do get us to a better place. So we've got two knowledge areas to work to rebuild our knowledge of natural law and our theoretical constructs of the security concerns of the world and how to respond to them. Okay, so let me zero in on sort of the last point you made. There are alternatives, effectively. One, you know, the defending state has alternatives other than the use of force. And this brings us back to Joram Dinstein's, or you said there was an earlier example of this, but Joram Dinstein uses the example of Pearl Harbor, right? So the, the Japanese fleet is, has sailed in November. It is on its way to a location north of Hawaii. The order hasn't been given yet. The decision hasn't been made yet. But the attack is somewhat in progress. I mean, certainly the the preparations for the attack are in place. And the question is, at what point is the attack actually in progress? And at what point would it be justifiable for the United States, had it learned that the fleet was there and that the attack was in progress, be entitled to use force against that fleet or against Maybe you say it's not, they can't use the force against the fleet. They have to wait until the planes have taken off from the aircraft carriers. I mean, this is the question, right? At what point? And what I'm trying to get at is you've conceded that you can use force against an attack that is in process. And the question is, there is an anticipatory aspect to that. You are actually at least using force prior to the blow having landed. And the question is how far back you can go and and I would guess to fast forward to another point that I think you raise at some in the article, you, you talk about the inherent vagueness of the concept of imminence. And one aspect of that vagueness you point out is that imminent on its dictionary definition, whether it's the English dictionary or like Black's Law Dictionary, has an inherent flexibility, right? It's contextual. So imminent could be five minutes, it could be five days, it could be five weeks. And you suggest that that's highly problematic. And I guess I want to push back against that a little bit. As much as I very much agree with a lot of your conclusions, I wonder if one understands imminence to be a function of the immediacy requirement of the principle of necessity, that it necessarily is contextual because the question is, when is the use of force necessary such that there is no alternative for purposes of responding to an armed attack? And it may be, if someone's pointing a gun at me and is about to squeeze the trigger, that my ability, my, my justifiable use of force against that person before they have completed pulling the trigger is measured in seconds. But in another context, it might be measured in a much lo- longer period. And in the context of use of force, it could be measured in weeks or even months. And 
I would note, right, that this issue of immediacy is not only used in the context of anticipatory self-defense, but even for purposes of self-defense generally, right? So there has to be the response to an armed attack that has actually occurred has to satisfy the, the criterion of immediacy. Otherwise, it will fail the necessity test. And that, too, will be contextual and may be measured in days, weeks, or months. So the Falklands War, everybody agrees that, well, I shouldn't say everybody agrees, but there is some agreement that the British response was a justifiable use of force in self-defense. But weeks pass before they're able to uh, gather the resources for an expeditionary force to send to the Falklands. But that is seen as satisfying the criteria of immediacy as a function of necessity. So isn't the real question one of necessity and whether and if you define imminence as tied to necessity such that really the question is, was the use of force a response to an armed attack that was in progress or in the process of being mounted? And there was truly no other alternative, but you didn't have to wait for the first blow to land. Wouldn't that satisfy the doctrine of self-defense? You've raised good, good points. And let me suggest I want to answer them one, two, three. At first, I want to talk about what triggers the right in the first instance to engage in self-defense. Second, let's talk about necessity following that triggering event. And third, let's talk about the category of military occupation and using military force to end an occupation like the Argentine occupation of the Falkland Islands. Okay. So the triggering event, that's what we've been talking about. Has an armed attack occurred? And you talked about there being some anticipation, even in my allowed category of the attack has occurred, the attack is occurring because it hasn't landed. But I don't make a distinction. The armed attack is doesn't have it is an armed attack when it is in progress, not just when it has landed. But what I think we have learned is to be very conservative. It's not as much of a problem as you suggest about over focusing, I think, on whether it's an armed attack that is occurring when you have the evidence that the, the flotilla is on its way and you say, well, but that's a triggering event that is can be handled as an armed attack because you have actual tangible evidence. This is not some future plan. Fortunately, we have more principles than just the armed attack principle. And that's why I'm not over concerned about these fine lines in terms of the armed attack occurring. Because even once you, I'm really back to let's get that tangible evidence and we don't have to be overly stingy about the moment because international law then provides the next layer of analysis. Once we've got the tangible evidence of the armed attack occurring, we have to think through in terms of necessity and proportionality, the shape of the response. So if you don't have good intelligence that this flotilla is doing more than making a show of force. We can go back to the 67 war for an example at this point, because we now know the evidence is clear that there were no plans by the Egyptians to attack, to stage an air attack on Israel. They had moved their planes into formation, but that was to send a message to the Israelis that they were serious and they didn't want to be attacked, which of course the Israelis end up doing and saying they're anticipating because there's going to be an attack. But we've got all this intelligence now that, in fact, Rabin knew they weren't going to attack and they just took the occasion. They manipulated the anticipatory doctrine, which was 
in discussion at that point to say that they had the right not to be a sitting duck. Well, there's an example of why we need real evidence that the attack is occurring. But let's say that the Israelis could could argue under O'Connell's assessment that the attack is occurring because the planes are moving into formation. At that point, is there a necessity to use force? And that's where we go back to the Caroline. That's all Caroline was talking about. Caroline is not about the initial triggering event. That's clear. It's a ship moving weapons and personnel into a rebellion in Canada. There's a triggering cause there. That's not part of the discussion. What's part of the discussion is even when there's a triggering cause, is there a necessity in that moment? And necessity is governed by the immediacy principle. Again, they never use in the 1842 correspondence the word imminent, but they do say no moment for deliberation. It has to be an emergency situation. And you put that together with your armed attack requirement and you will have the right to use force to truly protect your country. And it will not be manipulated because you've got this combination of tangible evidence and true exigent circumstances created by that very important workhorse general principle of necessity. If we had, if the United States and other countries, other NATO countries, Russia, had followed those principles, this would be a far safer world with much less spent on unnecessarily on munitions. So let me, let me just pause you there for a second, though, because I, mean, I guess that raises my question. It was a, an overarching question I had when I was reading the article, which is, is the mischief, you know, or the devil here, the concept of imminence itself? Or is it really the distortion, the abuse, the use of pretexts laid on onto imminence, right? Because as you've just ex- described it, imminence as understood as being a necessary function of the principle of necessity, it would be entirely limited. And I agree entirely with you, this idea that there has to be evidence, if not provided ex ante, certainly ex post by the defending state to demonstrate the justification for its use of force. But if we understand imminence in that sense, then it doesn't seem to be the boogeyman that it has become. And, and part of the reason that it has become such a problem is not, it's not inherent to the concept, but it's how it has been distorted and abused. But, you know, you think otherwise, so maybe you can explain why. It was really an important moment with the killing of Soleimani and the loose talk by President Trump, by Secretary Pompeo about imminence, and then to see that very problematic term used in the congressional resolutions and the joint resolution to try to restrain Donald Trump in attacking Iran, which was the big fear in early 2020. All Congress can think to do is tell the president, well, he shouldn't attack without first notifying Congress. And second, he wouldn't be restrained if there was an imminent attack. So at least the United States Congress doesn't really even see any longer an obligation to wait until an armed attack occurs. All they think is that the president should notify them when he wants to attack Iran. So we have gotten so far away from the actual governing law in this area. I had to use this moment to say, wait. And I only released the article now as Donald Trump is facing his second impeachment trial. He's involved in his second impeachment trial because this is a powerful occasion to understand 
what happens when you don't care about the law. So it's extremely important to move imminence away from the initial assessment of the danger to get us focused once again on the, on the requirement that there be a tangible objective threat in the moment, a, an armed attack. And only then do we start talking about, even if there is an armed attack, is there a better way to resolve this? And that's the necessity doctrine. But what we've seen is necessity is eating the entire rule. And it's a self-judging necessity based on what the potential victim, and they're not, Iran was never going to attack the United States. So this is all absolute rhetoric and not reality. Could we go back though to, to the, the cases, the few legal cases of the use of force since the drafting of the charter? And that is these cases where we don't have to worry anymore about judging an armed attack or immediacy. It's because Iraq has successfully invaded Kuwait and taken over that country. So now we have a continuing wrong. And there is no doubt that in that situation, at least within the first months, the state under military occupation can fight to defend itself. That was also the case with the Falkland Islands and with Crimea and Ukraine. Now, Tom Royce has this fascinating new piece that I wholly commend and, and, and agree to. It's, it's something I've written a little bit about in the past, but hadn't thought through as well as, as Tom has in the Nagorno-Karabakh context. And that's after years and years and decades have gone by, do you still have the right of self-defense to liberate your country or part of your territory from an unlawful use of military force in violation of 2-4 that ends up in an occupation and illegal. I've always commended the Ukrainians for not trying to counterattack Russia in Crimea because I don't think they could have supported it under the necessity doctrine of proportionality. The deaths would have, it would have been a slaughter for the Ukrainians. And they have properly used every other mechanism they can find without, in my view, sufficient support from the international community in litigation and in, in sanctions. They need much more support. Or look at the, I think, the really admirable way that the South Koreans have continued to deal with the North Koreans coming under this constant set of, of violent attacks. But the clear cases where you can use force, so we're just not doubting it, is in those initial stages of, of an occupation. And those can be responded to. But I've said with regard to the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories, now with regard to Ukraine and Crimea, Nagorno-Karabakh, it's time to look for alternatives, even in these situations that initially clearly met Article 2.4, Article 51, necessity, proportionality, and attribution uh, principles on the use of force. So maybe Tom's piece is also one of these important moments that we can truly understand that lawful use of military force is for only the exigent emergency in a clear and objective situation, but that all of law is moving toward and should constantly be progressing toward nonviolent ways of resolving disputes. Interesting. Tom actually was on the podcast to talk about that piece earlier. And we, we had the occasion to talk a little bit about you know, where his, his thinking has moved a little bit from his, his work on armed attack in Article 51 and 
where eminence stands in that. As you know, Tom's initial position was that the, the dominant view was that anticipatory self-defense is not permitted, but that there was this minority view. And he, he seems to suggest that the minority view is, is gaining strength, which I guess brings us to your conclusions, because I am mindful of the time. You know, in part three of your article, you do this wonderful job of tracing out sort of the, the intellectual history of how this concept of imminence begins. And as you say, begins as a fairly narrow and limited concept tied to, to the doctrine of necessity and sort of with its roots in, in the Caroline incident, but gets increasingly distorted. And, and to me, I think my takeaway is really that rather than the Soleimani strike, which I think a fairly large percentage of even academics in the United States feel was entirely unjustifiable and that the, the arguments put forth by the government were, were in, entirely inadequate. The killing of Anwar al-Awlaki, in contrast, which you, you get into and you, you explore the white paper uh, that was put out by the Department of Justice, is really the starting point of, of a complete and utter gutting of the concept of imminence of any t- temporal component, right? So, which to me is, is part of the problem. It, I mean, I guess I differ with you a little bit in thinking that imminence might have a role to play, but only if it's truly understood <laughs> in the way that imminence should be understood. It's a temporal concept. and to Try to characterize it as, as having nothing to do with time strikes me as just being utterly bizarre. I wanted to know, why are you hanging on to imminence? You see what imminence, it's inevitable that it would flow from the white paper definition that imminent need not mean immediate to the Trump understanding that it need not be even in view. It need not even be a possibility in the future. It can be based imminent can be based on past actions, a complete flipping of the meaning. So why don't we get back to what the charter actually says? Why do you want to hang on to imminence for this initial triggering point? We'll, we'll agree that it has a meaning within the necessity analysis, but that's the second step. Why do you want it in the first step? Well, actually, maybe you can explain that. What do you mean by in the first step? The threshold requirement for a state to use major military force on the territory of another foreign state, which is the definition of self-defense in international law, that state needs to be facing an armed attack occurring or go to the Security Council. Why isn't that good enough? Why do we have to bring imminent armed attack occurring? That just opens up and suddenly you're striking Baghdad Airport with your latest version of, of missiles. I don't necessarily want to defend anticipatory self-defense. I mean, I think that I agree with you, Tom Rouse and others, that ideally anticipatory self-defense is not a part of the core understanding of the doctrine of self-defense. Certainly, we have to concede that there is a lot of state practice now that suggests that anticipatory self-defense is the understanding of governments of many states. And there is an underlying intuition that, which is akin to the doctrine of self-defense in domestic criminal law in most systems, that one need not wait for the first blow to land, that one is entitled to anticipate to some degree. Now, where we seem to be quibbling is uh, when is that point reached? And you're saying, well, it's at the point when it's actually the attack is in, proce- in the process. When you've got evidence of it occurring. Right. And I think that 
you know, the pushback on this might be that, well, you could have evidence that an attack is in process, but that it is still weeks away from actually being launched or, or, you know, weeks away from the consequences being felt. And the question then, in my view, is you now have an armed attack and evidence of an armed attack. It hasn't actually manifested itself yet, but we are at what you call the second stage of, okay, what are my alternatives? Are there alternatives available to me to respond to this? What is still, you know, it may be in process, but the consequences are still in the future. Do I have alternatives? And under the Caroline test, if, if the answer is no, notwithstanding that it may be weeks away, but there is just simply the only alternative is to act immediately now in order to respond and, and to use force, then this satisfies the interceptive self-defense definition, right? And and this is where I have No, no, the... no, not right. No, I don't oh, want to yeah. say, no, I'm not agreeing with that at all. <laughs> okay. I think this, this is where the realist mentality has put us. Okay. And it sounds so logical, but could I suggest it sounds logical in part because we've heard it repeated so often by people of stature, people we respect, but think about it. You've just done away with the armed attack requirement. No, but the armed attack is in in process. Right? It's just it, it's just that the con- you said it's weeks away. It's weeks away. No, 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 no. The consequent. No, but remember, right? Going back to Joram Dinstein's Pearl Harbor example, the ships are at sea. Assuming for for the sake of argument, right? so we know that. I mean, for those who forget the history of Pearl Harbor. The Japanese fleet sails. It doesn't actually have orders yet because the decision hasn't been made. They actually get a, a radio signal, you know, on the eve of the actual attack that tells them the decision has now been made and they get the green light. But just assume for the sake of argument that the decision had been made earlier and that they were sailing, but it's taking them time to get to the launching point north of Hawaii. And the Americans learn of this. Now, there may be days remaining There may be some frantic diplomatic efforts, but at some point before the attack manifests, I mean, it's in process, it's kind of happening in slow motion, but before the hammer falls, is the United States entitled to at that point decide for itself based on the evidence that there is now no other alternative? We cannot risk further efforts at diplomatic and and have the planes strike us. We have to strike first. Craig. The realist told you we have to strike first. That is a military forward position. That is showing them that you are a tougher, you have a bigger military. Let me suggest to you that that attitude, that way of thinking about using military assets is not going to make any country secure today. It's not going to achieve security. Let's just stop talking about those old fashioned World War II and what should we do today regarding existential threats, military and otherwise? We need defense. We need defense. We need defense against the coronavirus. We need defense against cyber provocations. We need defense against incoming um, nuclear threats from North Korea and other places. That's what we need. We need to get off. Let me just say, one last thing on this. The, the, we have so miscalculated. And to bring this kind of offensive is the best defense into cyber, into everything else. When we are, because of artificial intelligence and the complete computerization and the snap judgment that this is happening, if we don't get back into a defensive mode out of an offensive mode, 
we don't have any capacity for law to be at at all relevant in this area because we're never going to see the incoming attack. That's over. It's over. So we have two kinds of or three kinds of ongoing security threats facing the United States in the military context. We still have terrorism. And having fought a war on terror of killing so many people over 20 years, and we still have a problem on terrorism. I say go back to the pre-Reagan years and use law enforcement that does not have a right of anticipatory or military force. Use law enforcement. Under law enforcement rules, that works. Let's talk about cyber and this massive cyber attack that occurred to the United States during December and the end of the transition from Trump to Biden. How could anticipating that have helped us at all? The only thing that we should be doing in the cybersphere is defense, coming up with these offensive ways in this mentality that we've had since imminence first came on the scene is making us less secure. We've got terrible cyber defenses because we've put so much emphasis on deterrence and on old-fashioned realist concepts that we think worked for us in the Cold War. Ridiculous. Why are we thinking about cyber that way? These are not kinetic attacks. This is not part of Article 51. Get out of it. And then there are the nuclear threats, the true military weapon threats that could wipe us out. We all know that the only real way to defend, and that means defending the existential existence of this world, because maybe people have forgotten nuclear winter, but I'm old enough to remember when we used to talk about that. It hasn't, nuclear winter hasn't gone away. We just stopped talking about it because we don't want to do the hard work of ending nuclear proliferation. We don't, Donald Trump walked away from our nuclear weapons agreements with Russia and he pulled out of the JCPOA with Iran. And he did this circus act with the North Koreans. In all those scenarios, there is no good outcome in which we anticipatorily attack those countries. That's not where our security is coming from. That's not where this, the United States or any nuclear-powered state has a future worth living when they use the first strike in a nuclear exchange. The only way to go forward with that military security problem is negotiating good treaties that end the possession and potential use of nuclear weapons. That's the only way forward to security. But that means getting back to, if I may go back to our earliest points, we need a new robust theory of why international law matters, why it's binding, why we care about it, why we care about the details, why we don't make stuff up because it pleases a particular president who has a huge military budget. And by the way, in terms of state practice on all of this, there are only a handful of countries in the world that use military force aggressively. We know, and that's the one place where I really applaud the work of the International Law Commission. On their customary law study, for example, they're very good about saying that there is no state practice that amounts to anything to undermine the rules of the charter on, on restraining the use of force. We're talking about five or six countries. That does not make a general practice, even if it could, because as O'Connell keeps saying, these are principles beyond positive law. And we don't look at violations of them and count them toward undermining a peremptory norm. That just makes no theoretical or ethical sense. So let's go forward and rebuild the theory of international law. Let's get the security threats outside this maniacal pro-military force realist mindset and into what's going to create real security going forward. And that's going to sound, because we've heard it so many times, Pollyannish, you know, that's not what real men do. I've been part of the U.S. military. I understand that. 
But this is a moment in which our students have just lived through a year of their lives being threatened, not by the Iranians, not by the Russians or the Chinese, but by a germ, by a virus. I think they are ready for a theory that tells them how to prevent that from happening in their lifetimes again. And let's give it to them. Let's finally start interpreting the international law and the use of force properly. Let's move imminence out of the mix. You've given us the evidence, Nora Erekat has. I've tried to do it in this new piece. It's not a word we should be employing in a legal context. It is an illusory term that only gives the feeling that you're being law-abiding until you have somebody else, somebody like Donald Trump, who doesn't care about feelings. He's not willing to play these games. He cut through and said he actually spoke the reality that he was killing Qasem Soleimani on the same legal grounds that Barack Obama killed Anwar al-Awlaki and all the people with them. Okay, well, I can't imagine finishing on a better note than that. So (laughs) why don't we leave it there? I mean, I will hopefully we'll have this article up on SSRN soon. We can be able to post the link to the website. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three readings, books, articles, something that you think has been overlooked or is not getting the attention it deserves for our readers. First, let me say to you, I so enjoyed this. I hope you feel you got to speak a lot because I learned so much from you and how you kept this conversation on track. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) was great. I do have three books. But if I could just make a shout out to people who are looking for a robust support of what I think is the right theoretical and practical approach to this area, my new book, The Art of Law in the International Community. It it represents natural law theory in the context of law and the use of force and then goes through the major topics of self-defense, security council authorization, resort to force and civil war and carries that, I think, resurrected, revitalized understanding of the robust theory underlying the prohibition. I relied on three books in writing that book that are are the ones I really want to recommend uh, to readers because I think they're overlooked. Ian Brownlee, International Law and the Use of Force by States, 1963. I think it is the most solid analysis of the true intent of the drafters of the charter and what they believed international law and the use of force was meant to say post-1945. Um, he's the one who pushes back against Bowett's idea that you can you can use force on some idea of imminence. Then Christine Gray, she's my, the person I look to. Oh, now I've got two more. Christine Gray and I'm going to do four, sorry. Actually, five if you count mine. And Olivier Corten, they have very consistent different emphases, but both Christine Gray and Olivier Corten, very solid, just rigorous and excellent work from both of them. And then here's one that really is overlooked a lot today. And I think we'll get all the, get the the sequencing, the right analysis that you and I were talking about, what comes first, what comes next. Judith Gardam, Necessity, Proportionality, and the Use of Military Force by States 2004. Yeah, that's that's one. If people would read Judith, then understand pivotal role of necessity and where it comes in the analysis. Well, listen, Marilyn, thank you so much. This has been so much fun and really interesting and, and important. I mean, these these are important issues. So thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with us. And I look forward to seeing you sometime soon when you know we're allowed to travel yet again. 
And if you have ideas of what you think I should write about in the future. No, I thought it was, it was fascinating reading, so thank you. I had, I had great fun. I want to do this again. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which features Sarah Holowinski of Human Rights Watch, discussing the mitigation of harm to civilians in armed conflict. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact information is on the website, which is simply jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and the reading recommendations on the website. And if you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts and writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at Podcast for updates on the coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next episode, stay safe.